How many of you just enjoy praying? Uh, this I, I don't want to put you on the spot because um, I know the Christian answer is to be like, oh, yeah. I mean, actually. I mean, have you, have you ever spent time praying in such a way that even though your body is in one place, it's like your heart and soul are in another place? I just want to encourage you. There are some things... This is not about the message. I just, I'm, I'm just laying this before you from the Lord, I believe. There are some things ahead that God desires to do through you that are never going to happen disconnected from prayer. You can't pull it off. You cannot. I love you, and I think you're a savage. But in comparison to our God... This God-sized call he's placed on your life isn't going to be able to happen apart from prayer. And so I hope you know three or four minutes here and there ain't going to do it. And I'm not taking shots at you. I'm trying to help give you what for me is the ultimate cheat code. I spent this morning prayer walking in a space in our city somewhere and believing God for something and not knowing what to pray. And what does one do when they don't know what to pray? Well, unfortunately, many of us, the answer is we just don't pray. When in fact, our Father has given us one of life's greatest cheat codes, praying in the Spirit. I, if I had a dollar for every time I needed to pray but didn't know what to pray, I'd be a very wealthy man as your pastor. When I don't know what to pray, I just stop using words I can understand and start using words he's using because he's praying through me. So I just want to submit that to you. I know I just took up two and a half minutes of my time in the service where I got to turn the parking lot over. But it's important enough to me, and I believe to the Lord, to just remind you, it ain't happening by you just sitting. You need to get in that prayer closet and rip down the powers and principalities that have tried to establish themselves against our God and get in the way of what God desires to do through you. In prayer, I believe is how it's all going to go down. Okay, is it all right for me to say that? I hope so, because it's the Bible. <laughs> well, we're going to continue our series, and if this is your first time here, thanks for being here. We've been in a series, and, and I'm realizing the very first year of Pillar Church, I said this to the Lord yesterday morning in prayer, I go, do you realize it appears as though the first year of Pillar, I am only going to preach one series, and it's going to last the whole year. And I was kind of just checking to see, like, if he would go, yeah, that was never my idea. And here's what I felt like the Lord's response was. Well, of course you are. I've been preparing you for 44 years to preach this message. And I still laugh, and I was like, yeah, but still, this breaks every rule in the book. I'm going to preach one series. And here's why. Because for me, 
it's the most important series I could teach you to become intimate best friends with the God of the universe. This is my heart for you because I believe it's God's heart and desire for you. So in the series entitled Friend of God, every uh, two weeks, essentially, we've been taking two weeks to answer a question. And last week, we started talking about the answers to the question, what is God like? We talked about the fact that this is one of the most important questions you're going to be asked. So we did four of the divine attributes of God, and then this week, we're gonna do five more, all right? So we're starting with point number six because we are answering the question, what is God like? And, and trust me, we're not going through near all of the divine attributes of God. And, and I believe this is a good exercise to do at least once every year, to study the attributes of God so that you are annually, consistently reminded of what God is actually like, not what you think he's like based on your circumstances or finite mind. And what I've learned is the more I learn about God, the more I fall in love with God. So let's continue with point number six. What is God like? God is omniscient. God is omniscient. Now listen, I'm gonna read about half of this message, especially now, because if I don't, the 11 o'clock service is just gonna start walking in here while we're still in the middle of this message. So I gotta try and stick to the notes here, right? The word omniscience means to know everything. God literally knows everything. 1 John 3.20 says, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. God knows everything about everything. He has all knowledge. Now, I don't know if you are anything like me, but I love to learn new things. Uh, if you look back throughout my life, I'm just constantly learning new things. When my wife said, I want a chicken coop, I use it as an opportunity to learn how to build something. I'd never built anything in my life. And I end up building this like 400 to 500 square foot chicken coop with two stories. Yeah, I'm a nerd like that. I like to learn new things. YouTube's one of my obsessions. I just like to learn new things. When I was a young adult pastor, I'd been in ministry, vocational ministry for 10 years, and I felt like I needed a new challenge. And so I decided I would learn how to fly an airplane. I just wanted to learn something new. I love learning new things. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but God will never, ever learn anything new. This gives me great confidence. There will never be a moment in history where God goes, ha, you know what occurred to me just now? Never. We will never hear God say, I had no idea. This gives me confidence. God never learns anything. God knows everything actual and possible in every detail of everything past, present, and future. Now, what would you call someone like that? A genius, maybe? Sure. Our God has infinite intellect, but it gets so much better than that. Our God is a lover whose intellect is motivated by intimacy. Psalm 139 verse six, King David makes this extravagant statement. 
And, and you've heard me talk about or use this kind of picture when we talk about God. Psalm 139 verse 6 may be one of the first in scripture on record. Listen to what King David says. He says, such knowledge, we'll talk about what knowledge in a sec. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Now, what knowledge is he talking about? If you go all the way back to chapter 139, verse 1, he starts off saying what has him so undone. Oh, Lord, you've examined my heart, and you know everything about me. Is David undone by the fact that God knows everything about everything? While that's impressive, I don't think that's why David was undone. You see, knowing everything about everything is remarkable, but knowing everything about me, that's romantic. There was a moment years ago where uh, I felt the Lord give me a picture. It was like a vision, and then there, it was like there was a commentary attached to the picture, and, and in the picture, and it was a moving picture, the two of us, myself and God, it was like we were sitting on a park bench in a really big city, but a park in the middle of that big city. And I was feeding the, the birds, and I felt the Lord say, Preston, there's a question you've never asked me before. And I said, what's the question? He said, you've never asked me why I know everything about everything. I said, well, why do you know everything about everything? He said, Preston, I don't know everything about everything because I want to. I don't know everything about everything so that I can say I do. I wanted to know everything about you. And in order for me to know everything about you, I had to know everything about everything. And so I do. And then he goes, Preston, there's another question you've never asked me. I said, what is it? He said, you remember when you were a boy, you told me by the time you die, you wanted to know more about me than anyone who ever lived. I said, I do. He said, do you remember a line you told me? I said, I don't know. What did I say? He said, Preston, as a boy, you told me that your favorite subject to learn about was me. And there's a question you've never asked me. Lord, what is it? You've never asked me what my favorite subject to learn about, even though he doesn't learn. You know, he's just... You've never asked me what my favorite subject was. I said, Lord, what's your favorite subject? You. Please hear my heart, and please don't use this as fuel to become a narcissist. I don't walk around saying, the God of the universe's favorite subject is me. I just fall asleep every night knowing and I wake up every morning certain of the fact that my daddy is obsessed with me. And if it's true for me, it's true for you. <laughs> Last week we ended part one of this message 
talking about the God of the universe wants to be known by you, but the news is even better than that. It's not just that he wants to be known by you. It's that he knows everything about everything because he wanted to know everything about you. Only someone obsessed with someone else does that. And our God is obsessed with you. Yes, it's incredible that God knows everything about everything, but what's so much more incredible than that is that he knows everything about you because he's just that obsessed with you. Here's point number seven. What is God like? God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. Omnipotent means all-powerful. God is all-powerful because he has unlimited power. He doesn't just have all power, he has unlimited power. His power is infinite because God is infinite, and therefore his power is limitless. Revelation chapter one, verse eight says, I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the almighty one. I do not know why some of us act like he is the kinda mighty one. We look at our enemy, we look at his enemies, we look at the obstacles before us, and somewhere along the line, we get in air theologically thinking that the God of the universe is kinda mighty. Because if he were almighty, then he would do everything I wanted him to do. No, that's not how it works. He is almighty because he has all power. And what he does with that power is his choice. And he is not a genie for me. He is my God. And my God, your God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, has all power. Now think about how awesome this is. Think about us as humans when we have to carry something which is heavy. What happens? It's hard, right? If you followed me to the gym later today and you put extra plates on the bar for me. Now, I have made an inner vow, just so you know, that if I ever put up heavy weight, I'll never become that guy in the gym that is the loud grunter getting everybody to stare at him. So you can put extra weights on my bar. I'm not gonna make noise, but it might crush my chest. <laughs> Why? Because for humans, the heavier the weight is, the harder it is to carry it. But that is not what God is like. While it gets harder for me to lift heavier weights, it never gets harder for God to carry any weight, no matter how heavy. To me, this is one of the most amazing facts in regards to the omnipotence of God. All of God's acts are done without effort. Think about this. When he parted the Red Sea, it wasn't like God was there, even though no one could physically see him. God was on the shore going, I think it was something more like this. Whoosh. All of his acts are done without effort. Think about how that applies to your life. 
God's not that guy in the gym grunting to put up heavier weights. All weight is equal to God because he can put up all of it simultaneously without effort. Only the one with all power is capable of something like that. Now, there's a phrase in scripture that I believe I call divinely sarcastic that God uses about himself to point at the omnipotence of God. The phrase is this, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And God uses this phrase about himself. And just, I'm telling you personally, I love it when he uses this phrase. Because I don't think he just goes, is anything too hard for the Lord? I think it's more like this. Is there anything? I think he just gets that cock of the head. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I don't think this is a phrase he whispers. And I want to show you the first time he uses this phrase. Genesis chapter 18, if you have a Bible, turn there and we can read it together. The backstory, Abraham and Sarah are in their 90s. And three divine beings, one we know is God, because a few verses earlier than what I'm going to read to you, says the Lord God was speaking to Abraham. What's called a theophany, theologically. A theophany is when God would appear as though in human form. Okay? So one of the three divine beings in this conversation was God himself. Now watch what happens starting in verse 10. Then one of the three divine beings said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure? Watch how she bust chucks her husband now. Especially when my master, my husband, is also so old. Okay, I don't want to get too descriptive, but what she's most likely saying is, God, even if I wanted to enjoy that pleasure and get pregnant, my husband's machinery doesn't work the way it used to. In other words, that's impossible. Not taking shots at Abraham and his machinery, just saying. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Watch how he says it. I'm going to read it the way I think he said it. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year. This is God talking, not just one of the other two divine beings. This is God saying, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Why? God would say, because I said so, and because I can. Is there anything too hard for me? I love that this is how God talks. It's like he's saying, seriously, people? I've got all power in heaven and on earth. Is there going to be anything too difficult for me to accomplish? 
When you get a revelation of the omnipotence of God, you walk with a bit of kingdom swagger. Why? Because nothing is too difficult for your God. In fact, nothing is even difficult for your God. Everything he does is without effort. Here's point number eight. What is God like? God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God means that God is in control. The more theologically accurate way to say this is that God is in total control. Listen to the way God talks in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. He says, remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Watch this next part. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. I love it when he talks like this. Only the, the sovereign, capital S, capital O, sovereign one, could talk like this. Whatever I plan comes to pass, because I do whatever I wish. He's sovereign. He's in total control. How many of us have ever felt we were spinning out of control before? Let's just be honest. Come on. This is not some lying church. Let's just be real, okay? I'm putting my hand up. I'll ask again just to normalize this kind of behavior, okay? This is not a church where we hide. This is a church where we live in the light, capital L. How many of us have ever had a moment in life where we felt we were spinning a little bit out of control. Could please look, thank you, thank you, thank you. All of us, right? You know one of the things that helps me sleep at night? That even when I might feel like things are out of control and I can do nothing about it, or I might be spinning a little bit out of control, that I fall asleep that night knowing that the God of the universe will never know what it's like to be out of control. The earth spins on its axis because my God does what he does. He's in control. He is sovereign. The sovereignty of God is the result of him having all power and all knowledge, what we just talked about. God has, the, this is my favorite one-liner in the message. I know I'm not putting it on the screen because of, of the book, but this is my favorite one-liner. And, and if you can't write it down, you should go back this week and just watch this. Write it down and meditate on it. God has the power and authority to do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, for, to, and through whomever he wants forever. I'm gonna drink my tea for a second and let that just simmer on you. See, I just drank in triplicate for emphasis. Let me read it again. Your daddy has the power and the authority to do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, for, to, and through, whomever he wants, forever. That's my daddy. That's my best friend.
where people get a little sideways on the sovereignty of God is when they think everything which happens happens because, because God causes it to happen, which would mean we were all like some kind of robot. There's a difference between God causing everything and God allowing something. Not everything that happens is caused by God, but it is allowed by God. And I know this is a complicated topic, and I've taught on this before, and you can go back and watch the messages on it. While we don't have the time to cover the sovereignty of God exhaustively in a few minutes, let's cover one of the greatest aspects of it, how God's sovereignty affects the curveballs of our lives. You know what a curveball is, right? It's when you think things are going to go one way, and they do for a while, and then out of nowhere, something happens, and things completely change. That's something which happens we call the curveball. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 about God's sovereignty in our curveballs in verse 28. And we, the children of God, know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. The curveballs of your life are not a surprise to your God. Romans 8 says that not only are they not a surprise to God, but that God takes even the curveballs of your life and actually works them to your advantage and his. God is so in control that one of his hobbies is taking what Satan means to harm you and spin even the bad and difficult things for your good to your advantage. Talk about rubbing it in your enemy's face. Even when the devil comes and tries to rip Job's life apart. God says, watch this. I'll work this together for his good and mine. It might not be easy, but this is what I do. There are going to be curveballs in your life. Don't allow anxiety to get you focused on feeling out of control. Your God reigns. He is the sovereign one. He will always be in total control. Allow peace to reign in your heart and in your mind because we have a God who is in such control that he will never know what it's like to be out of control. Point number nine, what is God like? God is immutable. The word immutable means cannot change. Once you start to get into the good news about what God is actually like, you kind of start pinching yourself and go, well, but can this change? Like, will it always be like this? And then God drops the bomb on you that one of his divine attributes is unchangeableness. It's literally impossible for him to change. Malachi 3 verse 6, listen to the words of God. I am the Lord. Can, can I just tell you, and I, I'm reading this on purpose multiple times during this message, because these words just encourage me so much. So much. I don't have to play God, because I'm never going to be God. But I do have to rest in the fact that he alone is God. And one of the things he loves to say is, I am the Lord. And watch what he says next in Malachi 3. And I do not change. Sometimes I think, God, 
Because this is so simple. Like he, he doesn't use a paragraph to describe his divine attribute of unchangeableness. He says it in a sentence. I am the Lord, I do not change. I, got a, I picked up a couple extra minutes, so I'll just, I'll rabbit trail for a sec. Preston, sometimes your simple and limited mind has trouble understanding when I drop big bombs on your brain. And so there are times when I want you to understand something and one of the ways, son, you know I really want you to understand it is I say it in its most simplistic form. Preston, you're going to read through my word and you're going to see miraculous things I do in days of old. And the enemy will come and try and tempt you. That was then and not now. And I don't want the enemy creating a narrative that I have changed. And so in the most simplistic form possible, in Malachi chapter three, verse six, as a 13-year-old boy, I'm going on record and letting you know what I did then, I can do now, because I don't change. So when, Preston, as a 30-year-old boy, while no one's watching, you are walking in a desert field in the heat of the summer, on the corner of Scottsdale Road and the 101, telling me and begging me that one day a move of God, a house of God, would be visible on the 101 in the city of Scottsdale. Not as the only, but as the first of others. Preston, it's going to take a miracle. It's gonna take a hundred miracles. But I need you to know, I am the Lord and I do not change. If I parted the Red Sea, I can make a dry desert spring forth with living water. Preston, this city is known for what people come here to do. But one day, it will be known for what I do. And as a 30-year-old boy, walking that dirt by myself with no support and no one knowing what I was doing, with no calculator, knowing that one day land prices would be $3 million an acre. And if you want to build a 2,000-seat sanctuary, you have to have about 15 acres for parking. That's a $45 million parking lot. But that boy, one focus on the price of the dirt, and he still isn't today. Want to know why? Because my daddy made sure I got the memo in the most simple form. I am the Lord, and I do not change. That wasn't the message, but I got three minutes earlier, so I just thought, you know, Lord, I'm just gonna, we're just going to take a walk. God, you don't change, and I'm glad you don't. I've banked my life 
and eternity on the fact that my daddy is the one who was, who is, and is to come. And what he was, he is. And what he is, he always will be. Because he never, ever changes. Problem with change is one of the most difficult areas in life where we experience change is in relationships. Ever been in a relationship with someone who changed? Married him at 21? Go through a midlife crisis at 45? Become a totally different human? Not taking shots at anybody or throwing shade at anybody? This is not abnormal. We're humans. We change. This should actually encourage us about the fact that our God does not change. Yep, when we see the people we love in our lives change, it can and usually does begin to impact all of our other relationships. When we see people we love change for the worse in a way which hurts us, we tend to hold back part of our hearts with everyone so as to not be hurt by anyone's changes ever again. When we don't understand the immutability of God, we think he can change just like anybody else. Here's another way to say it. We're afraid God might at some point be inconsistent. Understand something. If God could change, he could go from better to worse or from worse to better. But God's perfection makes it impossible to move in either of those directions. The immutability of God emphasizes the dependability of God. There has never been anyone with his record of consistency. You can completely depend on God because he is completely, eternally dependable. He is perfect, and that can never change. Think about how incredible it is that God cannot change. God is good. That will never change. God loves you. That will never change. He's your provider. That will never change. He's the God who speaks. That will never change. Everything God is, God always will be. Because God will never change. That brings us to point number 10. The ninth attribute we're covering, answering the question, what is God like? God is holy. God is holy. I want to draw your attention to a vision God gives Isaiah that we see in Isaiah chapter 6. And I want you to pay attention to what's being said by the mighty seraphim, starting in verse 2. This is around the throne, attending God, were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Notice that the angels were crying out, not just that he was holy or holy, holy. They're crying out, he is holy, holy, holy. When something is repeated three times in scripture, the reason is what I call radical emphasis or divine emphasis to really drive home a point of what is being said. 
Now, some of you are thinking that the word holy means one thing, and there are actually multiple meanings for this word holy in Scripture. The meaning most of us think about is this, moral perfection. God is morally perfect. Yes, he is. But that's not the only definition for the word holy. Let me give you another one and kind of use my, my language, all right? Radical differentness. Holy literally means altogether separate. In other words, so unlike everything else, it's in its own category by itself. Radical differentness. Of course, the mighty seraphim are saying, he is morally perfect, he is morally perfect, he is morally perfect, because he is. But I think what happens when we begin to study what God is actually like, and when the revelation of who he is really begins to set in on us, I think we get to the place where the only way we can describe him is the way the mighty seraphim did. He is radically different. There is no one else like him. Holy is our God. There is none other who is holy, just him. He is altogether separate. He is radically different. No one else is omnipotent. No one else is omniscient. Just our God. There's a catch that we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 to God being holy. Peter helps us understand part of God's heart. He says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Let me illustrate this and we'll be done. There was an orphan who before his first birthday was abandoned by his mother on the front steps of an orphanage. This orphanage was in the middle of an extremely impoverished country. Between his first birthday and his sixth birthday, he was passed to eight different orphanages. The little boy began to create a narrative about himself. Every time he was passed off to someone else, he said, no one loves me, and this just proves it. By the time he turned six, he had a problem with anger, the likes of which these orphanages had never seen. Between the ages of six and 13, the boy couldn't make it more than four months at any orphanage, and so he kept being passed off again and again. And every time he was, he was reminded, no one loves me. And this just proves it. 
And then at 13, not having anyone around him to help him process the circumstances of his life and the emotions in his heart, the boy made a decision that would change the rest of his life. Another boy was bullying him. And as he was pushing the little orphan down, the bully screamed out, nobody loves you. And the 13-year-old orphan snapped. And without realizing it, the rage he'd been feeling since before he was in kindergarten. Took hold of him. And he snapped the bully's neck. The staff of the orphanage runs in and pulls the 13-year-old orphan off of the bully who has just now lost his life. And in this particular country, the law is strict about taking the life of another. And so as a 13-year-old boy, this little boy was put in prison with grown men. Night after night, the boy was taken advantage of by these horrific men with impure hearts. And every night he fell asleep thinking, nobody loves me. And this just proves it. The night before his 16th birthday, having lived more life in 16 years than most adults will ever see in 10 lifetimes, laying in his cell that night, he heard his heart speak something out loud. If there is a God, please get me out of here. The next morning, the boy awakened on his 16th birthday and one of the officers running the prison comes into the boy's cell and says, you have a visitor. And the boy says, that can't be. No one even knows me. And no one even knows I'm here. And no one loves me. So why would someone come to see me? And the officer said, is your name? He said the boy's name. And the boy said, that's me. And the officer said, there's a visitor in the waiting room here to see you. The boy puts his hands out. The officer puts the handcuffs on his wrists escorts him into the private room where visitation takes place. And there sat a, a very old man the boy had never seen before. The boy sits down with the old man and said, who are you and why are you here? And the old man said, I've been following you since before you were born. 
I knew your mother. The boy's mind was racing. What does this mean? And the old man said, I've come not just to visit. I've come to ask you a question on your 16th birthday. Boy's mind spinning out of control. You even know it's my birthday? And the old man says, I'm telling you. I've been following you since before your birth. And I've come today to ask you one question. Would you like to get out? A 16-year-old orphan, thinking it might be a trick but not caring, having nothing to lose, said, of course I want out of here. Can you get me out of here? And the old man very calmly said, I can. Boy said, I'll do anything. And the old man said, so be it. And he looked at the officer and nodded his head. And the officer came over and unlocked the handcuffs on the 16-year-old orphan's hands. And the old man said, you're free to go. Come with me. Not wanting to even ask questions, the boy follows the old man. He doesn't care if it's a trick. He just wants out. And just as they're walking through the door, outside of the prison, the boy looks over at another door where a middle-aged man is coming into the prison. And all of the officers were there waiting for him and began beating on him, spitting on him, mocking him, taking advantage of him. And as the boy's walking out of the prison, he said, who is that? He's not one of us. He's not in prison clothes. Why is he going in there for this? And the old man said, that's my son. And the boy said, I don't understand. Why am I getting to leave, but he's going in? And the old man said, the judge would not relent. He said, someone must pay for what has been done. And if you want the boy to leave, you must leave someone in his place with me. And the old man said, I told you, I've been following you. And this is how much you're worth to me. The only way to get you out was to send him in. Just then, a stretch limousine pulls up and the old man says, they're here to take us to my home. Five minutes later, the limousine pulls up to the largest mansion the little boy had ever seen. And the boy says, where are we? And the old man says, this is my home. This is where I live. Would you like to live here? And the boy who was orphaned for 16 years, said, I would love to live here. The old man said, there's one more question I'd like to ask you. Would you like to be my son? 
boy who for 16 years said, there's no one who loves me and this just proveth. Would you like me to take care of you for the rest of your days? And the boy said, I want to be. What must I do? And the old man said, There's something you need to know about me. I'm different than anyone you'll ever meet. And I do things differently than everyone else. If you're going to be my child, I want you to be different, just like me. And in that moment, the 16-year-old boy made a vow to God, remembering the prayer he had prayed the night before. He said, God, I'm going to be just like my dad. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Preston, you just took 10 minutes to tell a story. I did. Longer than any point in the message. Because for somebody in this room, it's quite possible that that one story changes the way they live the rest of their life and quite possibly changes eternity for them. I know you know this. You're the orphan. I'm the orphan. We cannot study the attributes of God. In essence, to hear a story, just like I told you, of his awesomeness, his radical differentness, and not be affected in our hearts in such a way that it causes us to change the way we walk out our lives. My daddy is radically different and he snatched me out of that prison. As one believing the lie, nobody loves me and is going to come to see me, let alone rescue me. And yet he did. And it's why. I gave him my life. <laughs>